Well, it is, as I said a few moments ago, Palm Sunday here in the city, and it's a, it's a great day. Today is a, a significant day for Christians all around the world. Uh, next week, well, next week is Easter Sunday, and is even more significant to us. I don't think today should be overlooked, as today is the beginning of what we know as Holy Week in the Christian calendar, a week that, that quite literally changed the entire course of human history. And it's not often, when you really think about it, that you can make that kind of claim about any particular week. Uh, There are people in this room who have lived through a lot of human history. There are people here who saw World War II. There are people here who saw the the dropping of the first atom bomb, uh, who saw the, the Pearl Harbor event. There are people here who remember September 11th, 2001. And even this week was pretty significant in its own right as we got our very first glimpse of a black hole, nearly or over 100 years after Einstein first predicted or hypothesized that it was there. This week, we got to see the very first black hole. And guess what? It was amazing. It looked like a delicious glazed donut. (laughs) And so... All of those are significant weeks in human history, and yet they pale in comparison to the significance of the events that immediately followed what we're celebrating today, which was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. And so today, as we journey through the text to better understand the importance of this morning's message, I want to invite you to, to open up your Bibles We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this week. That's where we're going to be camping out. And uh, we're going to discuss why a simple journey into Jerusalem changed the world. And after you find your place, if you put your ribbon there or uh, your finger or whatever it might be, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. And as we've been doing the last several weeks, I want to invite you to to change your posture, Um, whether it's to stand or to kneel or to raise your hands. But this is a time for us to just show some reverence to a holy and almighty God. And uh, I I pray that we use that time uh, intentionally and look to the heavens and honor who God really is. Let's stand, kneel, whatever it is, and let's pray. Father, today is Palm Sunday, and it's a a day where we we just, I don't want to say just, it's so easy to to use that word and it it sort of diminishes the significance of what you've done. Father, you you did something amazing 2,000 years ago when you walked into the city. And today as we we talk about that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to truly grasp the significance of that moment and who you were claiming to be and why that matters for each and every one of us, Father. Uh, today, the, the way that we listen is as much a form of worship as the songs that we sing. And so today, I, I pray that you help us all to be engaged, engaged worshipers, and that you, you start to do something in us to shape us and to mold us into who you want us to be. Father, you, you fearfully and wonderfully made us. You knit us together in our mother's womb, but it was with purpose in mind. You, you had a vision for us as your church and as your community, as your people, as the hands and feet of Christ. 
And Father, as we, as we sang about and we talked about courage, uh, I pray that you give us the courage to use this week uh, with intention. This week is a, is a really important week for us in reflecting on and, and remembering who you are and what you did. And Father, as we, we think about and we meditate on the death of Christ, I pray that we, we put even more emphasis on the life of Christ. That if, if Christ dies and could live again, uh, Father, that promise is extended to us as well. And so today is a day that we come and we, we anticipate and we look forward to a celebration of life. Bless us today as we, we talk about your word. Father, speak through me. I don't, want to, I don't want these words to be my words. I want them to be your words. Father, open our ears and our hearts to hear what your holy word has to say. And, and use us today to be your people. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So I, I know I've promised that I'm going to slow down with some of the, the sports references or analogies, but man, every week it's just like low-hanging fruit. You know, I, I got to make an illustration and, and there's a sports reference for me. I'm a, I'm a Sacramento Kings fan, unlike I'm most sorry. of the people in this room. Yeah, no, it's, it's been rough. But <laughs> this, uh, this year has been one of the best years in about 13 or 14 seasons to be a Kings fan uh, because we, we almost actually made the playoffs this year. We didn't, but we got close. We got the ninth seed. And so, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're beggars at this point. But something uh, incredible happened this week for, for Kings fans. On Thursday, after a year in which... We, we almost made the playoffs. The Kings decided to fire their coach. Uh, they did what was sort of unthinkable. And that left the, the fan base rather divided about how they felt about that decision because half of the fans were immediately frustrated. They're going, oh, here we go again. You know, bad management, no vision, just all sorts of stuff, just dysfunction. Why would you fire a coach who just helped your historically bad team become way less bad. And then the, the other half of Kings fans turn their attention to the Bay Area and, and what's transpired with the Warriors as an example of, of what could be. Um, so you Warriors fans, of course, remember when Mark Jackson was the coach just a few short seasons ago. And uh, he, he took this historically bad team and had them on the verge of being a contender only for what to happen to him. He was fired himself, right? And he was replaced with someone who had never coached before, in Steve Kerr. And hindsight being what it is, you know, I think it's proved, I think it's proved to be an okay decision. I don't know. How do you guys feel about that? Um, yeah, no, it was, it was a good decision to, to change leadership. And Kerr has proved that he was the right choice. But think back five years ago. Think back to 2014 uh, about the, what the consensus was. It was far less clear. And so the, the same question was being asked then that's being asked today for Kings fans. Why would you fire a coach who just helped a historically bad team be way less bad? Um, and so whoever the decision maker was in that hiring for Golden State obviously proved himself to be right, but it didn't come without a lot of second guessing. And that's what Kings fans are hoping happens for us, that, that we've made this new hire and, uh, and we get to enjoy the promised land, so to speak, that the, the fans in, in the Bay Area have enjoyed for these last few years. 
But I bring all this to your attention to illustrate a greater point. That, that sometimes the best leadership there is, is the kind of leadership that has the courage to do things that nobody else would do. Usually because you understand things that nobody else understands. And when you understand things that nobody else understands, your thought process is dramatically different. And that's why we had a picture of the black hole this week. Einstein clearly understood some things that nobody else understood. And that's why over 100 years ago, he was able to theorize that, hey, there's this, this like black hole thingy somewhere out in space. I'm not really sure what to make of it. He understood things that nobody else understood. And it reminds me of God's words in Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, you know him well, or you may. God says through Isaiah, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Church, the, the ways of God are so much higher than the ways of man. His, his, his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. And I think that's a critical starting point for us as we consider the, the, the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Because God is getting ready to do some things in this story that the people would not do. Because he understands some things that the people do not understand. And so to appreciate this text fully, I think you almost need to divorce yourself of what you think you know about the person of Jesus and place yourself right in the context of first century Israel. We have 2,000 years of history and presuppositions that the people that lived in those times did not have. And I think it's critically important that we understand that as we try to understand what's going on with this account. So let me illustrate my point. Because this is a repeating story. It's a cycle throughout the history of Israel. Several weeks ago, we talked about the Exodus. It was our message where we were talking about Moses transitioning leadership to Joshua. We talked about the Exodus, uh, where God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and they cry out for deliverance, and God raises up a deliverer in the person of Moses, and God hears their prayer. Uh, I'm sorry, he, he, he delivers them, and he puts them onto a journey to the promised land of Canaan. And you'd think that the people would be thrilled, wouldn't you? They've, 400 years, they've been crying out. They finally are free. They're finally going. But are they thrilled? No. Within a very short period of time, the people begin to resent God for what he's done. They begin to wish they could go back to Egypt. They begin to wish they could even die. Think about the significance of that. They were crying out in slavery. Now they're free and they would rather be dead, they said. And what that shows is that the ways of man are considerably different than the ways of God. Israel's mad because their deliverance didn't come easily and it didn't look exactly like they wanted it to look or expected it to look. And as you fast forward ahead again some more into Israel's history, the promised hand is now firmly in their control. And as Joshua dies, God raises up a series of judges to help lead the people. And we're told that God was with these judges. 
Don't underestimate the significance of that word with. That's a big deal. God was with these judges, and through these judges, he saved them from the hands of their enemies. That God was protecting the nation of Israel from harm. But as we soon find out, the people don't want judges, do they? What do they want? They want a king. They want a king. They want to be like all the other nations, they said. And so God says to Samuel, his prophet, he says, look, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And as they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. So now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. He says, you'll see, it's going to be a lot different. This new king is going to ask for some things that judges never asked for. And so again, we see the ways of man and the ways of God diverging. They're going in different directions. And so despite an almighty God's hand of protection and despite the kingship over the people, they look to the other nations. They look to everybody else as an example of how to live. And if all the other nations have kings to go and lead them into battle, they say, that's what we want too. And so once again, the ways of man are different than the ways of God. And that brings us to the reason that we're all here this morning. This is Palm Sunday, the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem to begin what we've now come to call Holy Week or Passion Week. And you know the life of Jesus is interesting because it's a, it's a life that we know uh, very little about until Jesus is about 30 years old. We see this glimpse of Jesus when he's an infant, a little bit when he's a toddler, and not again until he's 12. And that's it. Just one brief mention when he's 12. And then his, his ministry picks up at 30 years old. And despite the fact that we don't know much except about three years of Jesus' life, there's not one, not two, not three, but there's four different books, four different accounts of Jesus' life during those three years. But I think what perhaps is maybe even more fascinating to me is that across all those four accounts, maybe as much as a third of all we know about Jesus' life and ministry that's recorded takes place in Jesus' final week of life. From the triumphal entry until the death, burial, and resurrection, a third of what we know about Jesus is this one week. This is a super important, very full week for Jesus. And so as we begin to consider the significance of the triumphal entry, I want to invite you, let's, let's read the text together, and we can sp- expand on a little bit more what's going on here. Now to set the stage... We're told that Jesus and his disciples are on a journey together. They're, they're walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, which, according to my research this week, was about 16 or 17 miles. For a point of reference, that's like walking out of our door here at Lake Merced Church of Christ, walking all the way across San Francisco, getting on the Bay Bridge, walking all the way across the Bay Bridge, and getting into Emeryville or Oakland. That's about how far Jesus is walking with his disciples to go from from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so verse 1 of chapter 21 of Matthew reads like this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. Imagine how you'd respond if someone came up and asked you for your car like that. Uh, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, 
See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so let's recap a little bit what we just read. You know, Jesus here is walking with his disciples. He's going some 17 miles. And just before he reaches Jerusalem, he sends two disciples ahead to go borrow a donkey and the colt of a donkey. And then Jesus climbs on top of one or perhaps both of them, depending on which gospel account you read. And he heads into town where he's received with cloaks and branches laying on the ground. The gospel of John tells us those are palm branches, which is why we call this Palm Sunday. And the crowds flock to him and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And I want you to think about this question. What is the significance of this story? What is the significance of this story? Why are we being told this? You know, the very first thing that Jesus instructs the disciples to do here <laughs> is to go get a donkey. Do you think it's because he was too tired to walk? Go like this. It's not because he was too tired to walk. You know, it's a pretty safe bet that if Jesus could walk, say, 16 miles, he could probably muster the strength to walk the, the final mile if he needed to do so. So it's, it's, if you really think about it, this is kind of a bizarre scene where Jesus suddenly decides, I can't go any further. I need to hop aboard a, bon a donkey before we head into Jerusalem and complete this journey that I'm on. And so our first clue as to what's going on is in verse 4 and 5. It says that, that Jesus did this to fulfill something that was spoken of long ago in the prophet Zechariah, where the Lord speaks through Zechariah and paints this picture of this Messiah that was to come. And in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what seems pretty clear to me is that Jesus is mounting this donkey for this journey, or the fact that he's mounting this donkey for this journey is not some coincidental prophecy that Jesus just so happened to fulfill in hindsight. It's not like he thought, let me get on a donkey, and then we look back, and, and we, in hindsight we can go, oh yeah, they did the same thing. Like, this is clearly who Zechariah was talking about. No, this is something that, that Jesus is fully and, and, and firmly aware of as he boards this donkey. In the words of N.T. Wright, the, the scene that Jesus is orchestrating here is staged. It's, it's intentional imagery that Jesus knows this Zechariah reference, and he's doing this on purpose. He's doing this because he knows it's going to catch the attention of the people in Jerusalem. And so when Zechariah writes what he writes in chapter 9, verse 9, it's important that we see it in the context of what he wrote in verses 1 through 8, where Israel is, is being destroyed by foreign enemies. And specifically, even though it's not mentioned here, uh, one of those enemies that, that destroys Tyre 
is, uh, is most likely Alexander the Great, a name that we probably know very well from our own secular history study. And so what would Alexander do when he'd approach a territory that he was going to conquer and, and, and rule over? He'd, he'd approach with bravado. He'd, he'd approach with, with, uh, with great confidence and, and with a, a kind of a military posture. And he'd be on this great horse when he did it. In fact, Alexander the Great's horse was so famous that we know the name of his horse even to this day. His name was Bucephalus, which means ox head. I mean, this was such a great horse. It was named Oxhead. I mean, think, what kind of horse do you have to be to be named Oxhead? That's a pretty significant horse, right? But that's what Alexander wrote, rode on, this massive horse named Oxhead. And so what Zechariah is doing here is he's describing a new king for Israel. And it's a different kind of king than the king that Israel's grown accustomed to having to deal with uh, as they've been subject to all these mem- uh, enemies. And so think about it. For years and years and years, they've, they've been subject first to the, uh, from empire to empire, first to Babylon, then to Persia and the Medes, and now Greece. And God is saying through Zechariah, look, no longer. I, I'm going to send a righteous king. I'm going to send a victorious king. I'm going to send a humble king, a king who's going to eliminate war, a king who's going to proclaim peace, and a king who's going to set all your captives free. And if you think about it from their perspective, this is an oppressed people once again. And for an oppressed people, those are words that you hang your hope on. That for 500 years now, the people of Israel, God's people, have been waiting for this new king that God's told them about hundreds of years earlier through Zechariah. This humble king who arrives on the back of a donkey. They've been waiting for this. And when you recognize that longing in the people, you begin to grasp the significance of what Jesus is doing. That yes, this is a staged moment, but the moment isn't the star of the show. The star of the show is the statement that Jesus is making about himself without ever having to utter any words. Because suddenly John the Baptist's words back in Matthew chapter 3, when he's proclaiming about Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Suddenly those, those words come into full focus And Jesus is declaring his claim to the throne of Israel that God once again is making a move to be king of his people. And the people of Jerusalem run to respond with enthusiasm. They run to respond with vigor that this moment demands. And so they run and they put their cloaks on the ground and they cut branches off their trees and they make way for a king. And as N.T. Wright reminds us, you don't cut branches of trees You don't cut foliage from your fields to go and wave in the streets because you feel somewhat elated. You do it because you are welcoming a king. You don't spread cloaks on the the road, especially in dusty, stony Middle East, for a friend. You don't do it for even a respected senior member of your family, he says. You do it for royalty. And so as one article I read reminded, if, if you're a poor farmer, if you're a commoner, a common person, You don't run and lay all your valuables down to be trampled on by a donkey unless you sense the significance of this moment. And we're told beginning in verse 9 that the people began to shout. They shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And as you look at that word Hosanna, our, our translations will often footnote that word for us. And they'll tell us that the meaning of that word is to save. 
And then a lot of times there's a note that comes with it that says, oh, well, it became known as this exclamation of praise, which I'm not saying is wrong, but I fear uh, might leave us with the wrong impression or or give us a little bit of a, uh, it might lack the fullness of what they're actually saying in that moment. Because it sounds like words of adoration, like they're just going, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But I, I think it's more than that. You see, Hosanna is this compound word First part, hosa, meaning save. And then the, the augment, which is Anna, which gives us this uh, sense of, of now or please. This is an imperative. This is a command. This is an urgent plea from the people toward a king for salvation. They're saying, save now. Save, please. They're asking for help. They're asking for salvation. They're asking for a coming king. And they see that in the person of Jesus. And so Alexander the Great, he wasn't the big man in town anymore. It's not the Greek Empire. Which empire is it now? It's Rome. Now Rome is the empire that's in town. And now Caesar is the king. And now the the local authority, of course, is Pontius Pilate, who we're going to meet soon. And so the people are excited because there's this new sheriff in town, this new guy who's going to come in. He's going to deliver them, so to speak. He's going to make everything better. Everything's going to be better. But then there's this catch. And there's always a catch, right? There's always a catch. Because what if Jesus does everything he says he'll do and yet still falls short or fails to be what they expected to be? How does one respond when your family, when your community has been waiting 500 years to be saved? There's a a Jewish philosopher. His name's not Rambam, but that's sort of what his, his nickname is, is Rambam. Uh, He's a medieval Jewish philosopher. He said there there are five expectations that the Jews had for the coming Messiah. Number one, they were going to return, or he's going to return the kingdom to Israel and to the lineage of David. Number two, the Messiah is going to build the temple in Jerusalem. Number three, he's going to gather the exiles and return them to the land of Israel. Four, he's going to rule over the world and enforce Torah obedience. And five, he's going to fight the wars of God, delivering the Jewish people from their enemies. And I want you to think about this. Have you ever heard a story of someone who failed to live up to expectations? Not because they failed, but because someone had the wrong expectations. We see examples of this all around us in, in the community we live in where executives take the fall because of a, of a struggling company or coaches take the fall because of underperforming teams or in some cases, uh, children and teens fail to live up to the, their parents' unrealistic expectations for their lives. It's a story that, that I've lived. It's a story that a lot of you have lived as well. But I want you to think about this. Look at those five items. Jesus is a king, but even he says his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus does build a temple, but it's not a temple made by human hands. Jesus does gather exiles and return them to Israel, but Israel isn't a land, it's a people, and the exiles aren't necessarily Jews. Jesus will rule over the world, but not yet. And Jesus does fight the wars of God. And he does deliver his people from their enemy. But the wars are unseen. 
And the real enemy isn't opposing nations. You see, Jesus is everything they expected him to be. And Jesus is nothing like they expected him to be. And so as we begin to see and understand more as the story goes on, Jesus is soon going to incite so much anger that likely the same crowds that are gathered here today screaming Hosanna in just a few days, do you know what they're going to be screaming? Crucify him. And so, of course, like the Golden State Warriors, we have the benefit of hindsight. It's always perfect. And we see now that what God had planned in Jesus was so much better. It was so much greater than what they could have ever hoped for or imagined. But the people thought the son of David would be like their great king, like David. And what they had yet to see was that he was so much more. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. And as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So let me ask you these questions. Are God's ways better than your ways? And are God's thoughts better than your thoughts? And did God accomplish what he desired to achieve uh, and achieve the purpose for which he sent his word? You better believe it. And so the Gospel of John tells us that God's word was with him in the beginning. And that everything that was made was made through his word. And that without his word, nothing that has been made was made. And his word was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And he tells us that his word became flesh, flesh and bone, just like you and me. And he came and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled, he pitched a tent with his people. He came to live with us. His word became flesh. So let me ask you again, did he accomplish what he desired? And did he achieve the purpose for which he sent his word? Yeah, without a doubt. Friends, the, the history of Israel is, is a failing to understand the ways and the thoughts of God. That Israel has often been accused of doing what was right in its own eyes or in their own eyes. And when people do what is right in their own eyes, they will always, always fail to, to understand the ways and the thoughts of a holy God. And I wish that story were only true of ancient Israel, that God's church had figured this out somewhere along the way and learned our lesson once and for all. But guess what? We haven't. We haven't learned that lesson. We are all uniquely guilty of living lives according to what seems right in our own eyes. And it's, it's sort of the nature of being a sinner. And I feel like I can say that because I am one. And so much like Paul says, you know, I, I oftentimes can look in the mirror and I see my own heart. I know my own heart and I feel like the worst of sinners. 
And maybe you guys, raise your hand if you ever feel like that as well. Like, man, I just can't, I can't get this right. That which I don't want to do, I do. And that which I, don't, I, I do, I don't want to do. And so on. Like, what a wretched man I am. I feel those words that Paul speaks. That's what, what, what I feel like when I think about my own heart here. And so the triumphal entry is a powerful story. It's a story uh, whose power was largely lost on me until I really dug into the story this week. And it was a hard lesson for me to preach because there was so much here that I had to learn as I wrestled with this text. Was the triumphal entry truly triumphant? I guess it's all in how you look at it. The greatest triumph of all is going to take place in the exact same place a week later from the time that Jesus rides into town on this donkey. But this week, as we celebrate a king who came to take his throne, we need to recognize that it was a different kind of throne that anyone ever expected. It was a cross. And the people who sat to his left and right, or at his left and right hand in his throne, they weren't the disciples, despite them clamoring, trying to earn that spot. And they weren't royalty. Who were they? They were thieves. The people sitting at Jesus' left and right hand on his throne this week were thieves. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if Jesus can welcome thieves into paradise, then he stands ready to welcome any of us into paradise. And so as we close this morning, I want to invite you to join the kingdom of God, where Jesus is the King of Kings, where Jesus is the Lord of Lords. And I don't know if, if, you've, if there's anyone in this room right now who has never surrendered their life to Christ, who has never honored Christ as King, but I want to invite you to do that today. I want to invite you to, to put away your own ways and to put on God's ways in your life. Let me ask you this, church. Which is greater, he or I? He. You've seen these stickers all around town, right? He is greater than I. God's ways are better than our ways. And his thoughts are better than our thoughts. Jesus was not the kind of king that the people wanted. He was not the kind of king that people expected. But he was exactly the kind of king that we needed. God is a big, almighty, amazing, merciful, loving God. And we get to worship him. And so I want to invite you to stand as we sing our last song. Let's worship that kind of God.